Hello and welcome to Mikey Pod Podcast, episode 285 for January 6th, 2020. Today's guest is Haitian-born, NYC-residing comedian Tanayel Shwashem, and I am your host, Michael Heron. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm a composer, pianist, electronic musician, storyteller, and activist based in New York City. On this podcast, I have conversations with fellow creators who use their creativity to change the world. I've been sending this podcast to your ears for 14 years. If you like what you hear, subscribe using the colorful buttons in the sidebar and footer at MikeyPod.com, or just search MikeyPod in your favorite podcast directory. If you'd like to know more about me, stop by my website at MichaelHeron.com, hit me up on social media everywhere as at MichaelHeron, or email MikeyPod at gmail.com. Hello, Happy New Year. It's the first podcast of the year, and I'm feeling pretty amped and stoked. And man, the holidays, I don't know if they're hard for you. They're hard for me. I, To be perfectly honest, they're super hard. Today's interview actually lifted me out of a major funk. Lots of great perspective from uh, TJ today. I'm really excited about this podcast and the interview, and I know you're going to love it too. So, yay. Uh, but, the, you know, holidays, I get, I go into a slump. It's Monday. I'm back at it. I'm excited. I'm going to roll out a podcast a week for January. I don't want to get all excited and be like, for the whole year of 2020, I'm going to do a Monday podcast every week. That's the goal. I'm going to let, I'm not going to let myself off the hook like I have in the past. Like, ah, uh, you know, I've opened up some space in my creative world, and I'm doing it for January. So look forward to a lot of podcasts. Yay. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about this plan I've had. I've had it for a while. I can't remember if I've ever talked about it on the podcast, but I am going to India. There's been this idea I've had for a while, and I wanted to do it last year and just, uh, you know, um, but I'm aiming for March for to take a fairly long trip to India and work with Animal Aid Unlimited. As I'm saying this, I realize I have talked about this on the podcast before. The goal is to go work with this organization, immerse myself in the culture, and see what kind of show comes out of it. It's time for me to write my next show. And that's how I want to start it. So I'm going to have my recorder with me. I'm going to do a lot of sampling and recording of sounds from the area, writing, working with the animals on the streets in Udaipur, India. I'm super excited. So that's happening. So I'll keep you going with updates on this. The show is going to be performed at uh, Dixon Place in 2021. So starting the process now, and I'm saying it out loud so that it happens. Thank you for hearing this. That's really all of my updates I have for you about my personal stuff. I want to get right on with the interview, but before I do, I would like to thank my patrons on Patreon. This podcast is brought to you by them, who, in addition to the warm feeling of knowing that they are co-creating with me, they also get lots of perks, zines, free downloads, merch discounts, exclusive patron-only podcasts, which go up every Wednesday, the Wednesday after you know, the Monday when the podcast comes out. This week's bonus podcast will be the full audio from my show last month at Judson Memorial Church with guests Kirsten Marilyn, Chloe Kozer, and Sing Out Louise. Um, yeah, and I'm sending out a, a zine tomorrow um, from that show. And so $5 and up patrons are getting, they get a thing quarterly, a little handmade zine that I send out. So if you want to know more about that, check out patreon.com slash Michael Heron for more info. So yeah, here's some music every night by my pal Walker Lukens, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. And after this, we'll hear from TJ. Because every night, 
like a cop with the skin on my teeth Cause every night It's the same to see You can check it out You can keep it in if you need And every night It's the same old beast And it's got your neck And both of you looking at Joining me now on the podcast is Tanayel Zwashem. Hopefully I got that right. You could also refer to him as TJ. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the diligence of getting the name right. You know, you're one of the few that has gotten it right. So I give you mad props for that. And for the rest of you, hey, TJ is... Is the way to go. So don't don't knock yourself over the head. Oh yeah, I love yeah. And then well, it'll be written in the show notes, and I'll include links for you. Look, I'm treating this like if you can't cope with TJ's name, here's here's all the like backup plan. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it's an so, emergency situation. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad it, I found about out about your work, and I kind of wish I had a little more time to like dig deeper. Um, but I've just read your New York Times uh, op-ed, and I've been watching your stand-up. You have an album recording coming up. Let's talk about that first. Can you give me the scoop on that? All right. So uh, it's going to be Friday, January 3rd at Littlefield in Brooklyn. So the way it came about was I've been working on a lot of... I started stand-up in 2012. So this year is officially my seventh year of doing stand-up. You know, over that time, I've accumulated a lot of material, just a lot of stuff I've been doing, uh, just different sets around the city. And I wanted to, it felt like it was the right time to put something on the record. And I got this company called Comedy Dynamics, who they produce a lot of great stuff with really great comedians that I love and respect. So we got together with them and they were very interested. So we decided we're going to record an album with them. And it so happened to fall on my birthday, which is January 3rd, and that's a Friday. So I thought, you know what? Perfect. Let's just record the album and have a birthday party, and then everybody's happy. Ah, oh, this is great. Uh, and, yeah. it's, and it's at Littlefield in Brooklyn. Um, yes. I, yeah, I could rattle off the address and everything, but everyone can look. At, well, I, now i got to do it. 635 Sackett Street in Brooklyn. I, I'm so curious about stand-up comedy because... And especially yours, because you do a pretty direct about issues of race and privilege and and that type of thing. I'm super curious about that from like a comedy perspective, because I don't know the comedy world that well. Like, can -hmm. you talk a little bit about how you put those things together and and the challenges there? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Well, for me, the people that inspired me when I sort of got into this, it was always about the willingness to speak on real things and uncomfortable things possibly, but they were able to do it in a way that's very conversational. Like I'm not lecturing this audience about anything. I'm just talking to them about real things that I notice in the world and real things in my life. 
the first comedian that I saw that uh, made me feel like I could do this was George Carlin. I moved here in 2008, and that's the year he died, unfortunately. But I watched, that's the year I discovered him. I watched so many of his specials, and the first one that I saw, I was in college, and this girl introduced me to him, and I thought, oh, this is something I could do. Because at the time, I was trying to improve my English. Mm. I learned how to speak English when I came here. So part of the improvement process was watching a lot of television. And through TV, I just got into stand-up comedy, and I fell in love with it. And over time, it became this thing that I love so much that I I thought to myself, oh, I have to do this. If I don't do this, I'm going to be really mad at myself. Uh, so am I following that timeline correctly? Like, were you already doing stand-up when you discovered George Carlin, or was this... After. No, no, I was not. I was not. I moved here in 2008 and I started doing stand up in 2012. Oh, wow. That's yeah. solid. And was the motivation to like be able to talk to audiences about this stuff or just the, the love of stand up and the two things kind of merged? Well, the two kind of merged because I love stand up. And if you're going to be good at stand up, you have to do it the way you you have to do it in a very authentic way. And I'm the kind of person that likes to talk about these things. Mm. So that's part of the motivation because it's just me. But also, I think it's good to talk about things that people don't talk about because it might be uncomfortable. Does that make sense? This is one of the few jobs where I can be on stage with a microphone and I can talk about anything I want. So why not use it to say those things that people think about all the time and encounter in their lives all the time. But it's probably too polite to say at a dinner party. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. And it gives you the people, because people are going to like any type of performance to be for the, for the performer's point of view and like whatever way it is. So exactly. that gives you a certain amount of, uh, uh, an excuse, an excuse, or like people will excuse something that might otherwise offend them or make them feel right, challenged. Right. And it, and it also is nothing wrong with being offended also, you know, it's okay to hear something that may upset you, but just know that the performer's intention is never to upset you. Yeah. I love like one of the things that, that was interesting to me, like I've just been trying to sort of be aware of like this type of thing that you're talking about. And you there was I can't remember what you were saying in this particular set I was watching, but it sort of related to like, oh, it was about emotional eating. And yeah, and it was yeah. real heavy on the like, oh, yeah, like, well, you could probably describe that better than I can, I guess. <laughs> yeah, which well, the, the whole point of it was that that's such a foreign concept to me that people have this problem and they consider it a serious problem. Like I'm an emotional eater. But from my perspective as a Haitian immigrant, it's like, oh, my God, that means you have so much food in your life that you have food for specific feelings. That is amazing to me. But if you're American, that's a perfectly reasonable problem to have. <laughs> that sometimes you're sad, you overeat because you want to deal with your feelings. You eat your feelings. In, in the New York Times thing, you were talking about how... Um you, you're imagining the United States becoming a third world country. A third world country, yes. Yeah, yes, and like, and ninety percent of the audiences, ninety percent of white Americans seem to get it, but then there's the ten percent who can't take that thought. Like, 
what's that like? <laughs> like being, you know, realizing like, oh shit, I got that 10% tonight. Like, what's that like? <laughs> it's it's a very interesting process because, I mean, comedians, we tend to be perfectionists. So if we're on stage, we want almost every single person in the audience to be laughing and enjoying whatever we're doing, which is a good goal, but it's also not realistic because most of the times that's not going to happen. There's always going to be somebody who like takes offense, who feels like that's too far or you shouldn't talk about this. Mm. That's fine. But part of the, you know, the struggle, but also the beauty of this art form is, oh, I'm going to say this and make you okay with it. Because at the end of the day, I want you to realize this is not coming from a malicious perspective. It's kind of like that emotional eating bit. A lot of people, specifically white women, deal with that as a problem, right? Mm-hmm. But when they see me joking about it, I want them to know this isn't me being mean to you. This is me pointing out the absurdity of a mm. thing. And if people can sense that, they can realize, oh, this is pretty absurd. I mean, I know I do it, but this is absurd. So I don't really feel attacked by what it's saying. I get what it's saying. Do you make yourself aware of the need for that when you're crafting a, a joke or a bit like that? Absolutely. That's always in your head because you know, first and foremost, I mean, I'm not trying to make people uncomfortable. That just may happen based on what I'm talking about. That's one. And two, I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. I just want to talk about things from my perspective. And based on my word choice and my delivery of it, I want to convey that. Because let's talk here. We're at a comedy show. We're talking about real things. Let's be adults about it. But just know that I'm not coming from a place who's trying to hurt you. No comedian ever wants to hurt anybody. All we want to do is make people laugh. And sometimes we get we give ourselves pat on the back for being able to get a laugh out of something that's sensitive and difficult. That's like the trick of it. You're like, oh, I feel like a magician because I made you laugh at something you would otherwise never laugh about. I'm a writer and performer and musician. I do like kind of storytelling stuff. So like I get in these little thoughts like, wait a minute, like I'm finding relationships and like creative processes, that type of thing. One of the things that that is really striking me about what what you're talking about in your approach is you you talk about how your comedy needs to be authentic, but you're also you also have to at the same time be aware of like taking care of the audience, making sure that you're not like you're bringing them with you. Um can you talk about that balance a little bit? Is it is it difficult for you? Um, it comes with experience. The more you do it, the more you realize this is a conversation. As much as it looks like a monologue, it really is a dialogue. I go and talk and the audience respond to me based on different things. The metrics are usually laughter. Uh, they are silence and how much they're paying attention. So those are the metrics of that dialogue. And when I go and embark on that journey with them, I have to listen to them so I know that they are taking it with me. Sometimes an audience can tell you whether or not they like a bit, and that will let you know whether or not you should keep doing that bit, because comedy is, is, is tug and pull. They mm. give me, I give them. They give me, I give them. 
Sometimes they'll tell me to go faster. Sometimes they'll tell me to slow down. Sometimes they'll tell me, oh, we don't we don't want to hear about this. It's all part of the process. I'm listening to them and they're listening to me. It's just I'm, I happen to be the captain of the ship, but it's still a ship that has to go somewhere and I can't force people to go somewhere they don't want to go. Oh, I love it. Like these are things I'm learning. And it's I this is one of the reasons I love talking to performers because I'm sometimes I feel like I'm aware of that, but hearing you like lay it out like that, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Like it it sort of opens things up for me and I hope it's opening things up for people who are listening too. Oh, I'm happy to hear that, man. Yeah, that's great. I would love to go back and hear what it was like for you when you decided you wanted to start pursuing stand up comedy. What was that process like and, and your pathway to doing what you're doing now? I made the decision to do it progressively. Like it's it's a big decision to make because that's a lifetime career choice. You're choosing a thing that's completely different from what you were brought up to be. You know, as an immigrant, you know the the hockey thing is you do the respectable professions, doctor, lawyer, all of that stuff. So here I am in America and I made a complete 180 and I'm choosing to do something that my parents don't even really know what it's like. Mm. So that's a big move. But luckily I loved it so much that I was willing to take that risk. It's a big risk to take, but I wanted to take it. So once you do that, you at peace with yourself about the decision. Then comes the part of, okay, I want to do this. Now, how do I do this? There's no school for this. This is something you got to do. And you watch other people who are great at it. You pick up a few things from them. and But ultimately, you have to go on stage and do it. Mm-hmm. So basically, I came to New York and I did some research. And the way to do it is you go to open mics. So what I did was I wrote five minutes of jokes. They weren't great at the time, but now I know they weren't great. But back then, I thought, oh, those were really good jokes. You write five minutes. <laughs> jokes and I practiced them in front of my mirror and uh, I remember the exact spot August 14, 2012 there's a little place called Lucky Jack's on the Lower East Side and they used to do an open mic on a Tuesday so I memorized my five minutes of jokes and I went over to Lucky Jack's I paid my five dollars that was the fee you had to pay you have to pay to perform sometimes in New York City so I paid my $5 and I chugged two beers to give me some liquid <laughs> courage. And I went on stage and I did my five minutes of jokes. There were maybe eight or nine other comedians there. I got a couple of chuckles and it felt okay. I felt comfortable being on stage. And I was like, oh, this is it. I like this. I'm in. And then you just kept doing it. And I kept doing it. Haven't stopped since August 2012. So here I am. I love hearing about it because there's it's... I think one of the things that people think about creators, and it took me, you know, I, I started, I've been a musician for my whole life pretty much, but I just started like maybe, I guess, eight years ago, performing my own work, like writing these stories. Like I'd always wanted to do this type of thing. And I was always like really, it felt like this big hurdle and this thing that, oh, like other people were going to be able to do and I wasn't going to be able to do. So I love these stories. <laughs> Like this, when you're like, oh, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, so I went and started being a stand-up comedian. Like, <laughs> it's like... Yeah. It, yeah, I mean, it's it's terrifying for most people to do something like this, right? Because it's it's 
uh, there's no path to it. That's that's the terrifying part. Yeah. People always talk about, oh, you got to be brave to be on stage, the nerve, the nerves, and, you know, if people don't laugh. Yeah, that's something everybody can get used to. But the terrifying aspect is how murky the, the pathway of it is. Because if you, if you want to be a doctor, all, although that's difficult, but there's a path to being a doctor. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, get, you go to medical school, you do four years, and then you do whatever else, and you do a residency. There's a path for that. Yeah. Comedy then, is a dream, so you don't even know where you're going to end up. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no, like, projected salary, and, like, there's no, no license right. that says, okay, you're officially a comedian now. Here's your piece of paper right. that says your that. Path, here's your license. You get to work at all these places. You can go sell out theaters. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. <laughs> Was there a time when, with that murky path, where you came close to giving up, or was it pretty, pretty easy for you to just keep trudging forward? Uh, well, I never came close to giving up, but I, I had mo, I have very low moments, you know, mm -hmm. moments of being super broke, moments of questioning, man, did I do the right thing with my life? How am I wasting my life? You, you're going to have those moments. And I don't care what you do in any creative field, you're going to have those moments. And what has to sustain you is, how much do I like this? Because ultimately, it has to come from a love of the thing and not so much the potential rewards that you get from the thing. Because the rewards, you can't control that. Like, how famous do I get? How much money can I make? How many people are going to know me? Will I be rewarded by being on TV? All of that stuff. That's external. If that's what you want, then you, you like, can we curse on this? I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, you're fucking yourself over because that's, that's unrealistic and that's just not given to anybody. So do you like it? Do you want to do it? Then do that. So mm. that will sustain you through the moments of of how bad it gets. Yeah, that's the uh, that's a big challenge for me still. Like I get in that place of like, oh, nobody cares about this, like whatever thing it is. And yeah, I, 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 it sounds like you uh, is is it easy for you? Like it sounds like it's been pretty easy for you to make that connection of like, oh no, I like doing this, so I'm going to keep doing it. I love this. No, I don't want to give anybody the, the, the idea that it's easy. It's not easy at all. It's, it's daily work. You just have to work at it. <laughs> Nothing easy in New York City, let alone being a fucking comedian. I mean, it costs so much money just to exist here, right? Yeah. So on top of existing, you're doing a thing that doesn't pay you a lot of money when you're unknown. So that's insane. You have your rent to pay. You have, you know, your life to live. You have to eat. So all of that comes into the equation. So, no, it's not easy at all. It's it's insanely hard. But you do it because you love it. Yeah. And that's what you want out of life. Yeah. Uh, I got, I've got to save this. I mean, obviously, I'm going to save it because it's going on the podcast. So I'm like, ah, uh, because <laughs> I just had a thing last week where I was like, wah, like, I, and it's that it's becoming a victim to being creative, right? Like this, like, Oh, this is so hard to, you know, I don't know. Like maybe this is, I think yeah. I'm getting a little too into my own little process, but, um, but there, I think there's, we have, we can make that choice. And it sounds like you're in a good spot with that. Where you are like, no, this is, would you consider it a gift that you get to do 
comedy this thing that you love? I, I think in a way, yeah, you have to look at it like that. It's like, all right, am I giving something to maybe, I mean, that might be a little grandiose. It's just like, all right, that's my gift and I'm giving it to the world. And in return, they give me their validation and their appreciation for it. So mm. those things are tricks that help you stay grounded within that thing when it gets hard. Because look, man, uh, one time I, I had I was doing a show in like a little basement in Brooklyn and it was uh-huh. raining. And the water came from upstairs and pretty much flooded the room. And there were, <laughs> we had to get the towels from the venue to put on the floor before we could start the show. And that was one of those moments where I'm like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Uh, this is insane. And in that moment, you're like, oh, I fucking hate this. Why did I choose to do this? I'm such a waste of time. And then you go and sleep on it. And the next day you're like, all right, back at it. I have a good show. Uh, Let's go and, and do this thing we love to do. Yeah. How was your set that night with the flood? It actually was fun because that's the beauty of comedy. You get to comment on the truth of what's happening. <laughs> in the- and people expect it. Exactly. So we immediately went and made fun of the fact that we're in a fucking basement <laughs> and it's flooding and we're about to tell jokes. So that's already <laughs> opening the gates for some laughter. So You moved to the United States before Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, yes. Just some of the stuff that you're saying is really, I feel like it's super valuable. Like that whole idea of your friends being like, oh my God, are you, are you afraid? Like, like on this over the top right. way when like your experience is not like, do you want to just comment on that? Maybe I don't have an yes, exact question. Yes. There. I, think, I think I know what you're trying to get at. Like Donald Trump is not like the, the, the biggest obstacle I've ever seen in my life. He's not like the devil with horns. You know what I mean? Because when you're an immigrant, what happens is you get a taste of reality that's a little bit more potent than what the average American gets. Because, mm. you know, America is a little bit, that's why most people want to come here, because it's a little bit nicer here. It's a little bit easier. You have a little bit of a cushion. Your life is more padded. Right. So when I come here and oh, Donald Trump gets elected and it's crazy. And there were legit people crying. I think for a lot of people, that was the first time experiencing real distress. And for me, it's like, oh, this is disappointing. But all right, let's let's live our lives because this guy is, is crazy. We made the mistake of electing him, but we have to keep living because I'm used to much worse than this. I can handle this. Beauty of being an immigrant because I've handled so much worse. I mean, I've known presidents just like Donald Trump for like my entire life. One time I didn't go to school for six months because the country was on lockdown because the people wanted the president to leave. And they just, there was riots and protests every day for six months. And I was just reading books and playing dominoes with my friends because that's what a country on lockdown looks like. Just tires on fire everywhere, like gunshots every day. Like, I'm used to stuff like that. So when you come here to America and people talk about government shutdown and all it is is a couple of offices are closed, I'm like, that is amazing. That's what you call a government shutdown? <laughs> it's Everybody can live their life still? That's insane. Like, if 
yeah. Like if I didn't know about the government shutdown, I never would have known about the government shutdown. The like government it, shutdown, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just these big words to express a reality that's very simple. I, I'm a little naive and ignorant as far as politics go. And like, this is why talking to someone like you is super helpful. Um, mm-hmm. Just in my own, like needing to not be a uh, little baby. <laughs> um, well, where are you from, Mike? Uh, I'm from, you know, I'm from Texas. Uh, Texas. Yeah. Okay. I'm in Brooklyn now, but like, I mean, I've always had it pretty easy, even as like a, uh, like, you know, I got a lot of, stuff like uh, i'm a recovering alcoholic drug addict all that kind of stuff but even with that i'm like i'm begun to realize like it's it's okay like it wasn't like it's okay and it's just it's really interesting to think about you know i i wonder how much of it it's as important as it is to be aware and be concerned about things that are happening with us like it's also not so bad that we need to be posting posts on Facebook every single day about the about how terrible Donald Trump is. Like there, it seems like oh, I, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm like oh, people gonna get upset. <laughs> but you know, like right. we right. do need to go on and live our lives. Like you're talking about, like okay, yeah, this sucks. But what do we do? What's our next step? And how do we like make the world immediately around us better? Exactly, exactly. It's it's almost like he he's a terrible guy. There's no question about that. Like he's. He speaks like a seventh grader. He's not an intelligent man. He's a pathological liar. There's no way he should have been president. But he is. So we have to deal with that. And let's not make the mistake of thinking everything that's wrong in our lives is because of this guy. Because there were problems before and there'll be problems after him. So I want people to keep, stay grounded and realize that, oh, life is just life. We have to still live it. And, you know. Let's not use this guy as the scapegoat for everything in our lives. Yeah. And there's that that piece of like a lot of the stuff that we're suddenly saying is so wrong because of Donald Trump was already wrong. We just were. It just wasn't as visible. Exactly. Exactly. Like people act like Donald Trump brought out so many racists. Like, well, the racists were there. He may have empowered them, but they were already there. America has always had racists. That's just part of the course. Yeah. That was one of the most like eye-opening things for me when I was like, oh my God, like all these racists and my friends are like, mm-hmm. uh, no, we've been <laughs> telling you, we've been telling you about this for a long time. You weren't listening. Like it's, right. yeah, right. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's a valuable, uh, I don't want to get too like deep in all this, but <laughs> that's like one of those yeah. things, like there's positive shit comes out of fucked up things. And that's right. one of them. I'll, like I'll a lot give of people. You a quick anecdote. I was doing a show maybe a year ago at, at uh, one of my favorite clubs in the city, and after the show, I kind of got to talk to a guy. Like he was a wealthy Manhattan dude, like sort of finance bro. So you know the type, yeah, white yeah. dude. And uh, we're talking, and he was like, you know, that's this, that's my thing with liberals. And he's kind of a conservative, and he was saying that's my thing with liberals because. You know, when Obama was president, there was no racism. And all of a sudden, Trump is president. People keep talking about racism. Where was all this racism under Obama? And it's such a mind-blowing thing for someone to say. But they don't even realize how crazy it is. Like, to him, there was no racism under Obama. Oh, did he think... Obama was a black president. So he literally thought there was no racism? Yes. He's oh. like, well... 
all this racism under Obama. Where was it? I never saw it. But all of a sudden, because Trump is president, people are talking about it like it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you don't even get this. There's almost no point in me having a conversation with you because in your life, if you don't experience something, that means that thing does not exist. I love I love these. What do you say to that moment? It's like, and that's it. Like, did you engage with him further? No, at that point, I was like, oh, this is going to become a, a, a shouting split screen CNN type of thing. So there's no <laughs> yeah, there's no reason. Yeah, it's smart to walk away from that stuff, but it feels like, I don't know, maybe it, it feels a little like, oh no, I'm letting the world down, but we can't, that's a, that's an unreachable <laughs> yeah. person, I think. Yeah, we can't, we can't save every, every single person in the world, you know, that's also one thing that I make sure that I'm aware of, like, I think sometimes people look at their entertainers as saviors. Like, oh, you hear, say the thing to make me feel better. Say this thing. Say, because also because of Trump now, there's a lot of comedy that I feel like is clapter as opposed to seeking a laugh. People just want an applause by saying something that everyone in the audience that is in front of them already agrees with. Yeah. You go on stage, you go, oh, Trump is terrible. That's an applause break in New York. You're like, racism is bad. That's an applause break. It's like, all right. Those are the things we already know. So what are you adding to this conversation that's, that might be an interesting perspective to give me that I may not know? I mean, and that's, I think, what's valuable about what you do. You know, you yeah. just looking at the audience and a couple of those things, it's like you're talking to audiences that may not be thinking about some of the things you're saying, like some of the, some of the privileged things and uh it's like I mean, and that's one of the ones I watched today, so that's why it's kind of sticking in my head. But you know, like yeah. you're you're bringing something to them that isn't gonna be from the get go an applause break, right? And you're crafting it in a way that they stay with you, which is pretty fantastic. Right, right, right. I think comedy allows us to listen to perspectives that we normally may not be privy to, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think for for an audience of Americans of all types, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, like whoever it is, just to have somebody like me who's an immigrant born and raised in Haiti, which is something most Americans don't know about, having to talk to them and tell them this is what it was like for me and this is how I see the world. I think that's a valuable experience for them to be able to listen to that. Oh, man, we got to wrap this thing up. Can you give me a quick rundown where you can be found on the Internet? Yeah, on uh, Instagram and Twitter, you can find me at TJ Standup. That's at TJ Standup. It's really simple. And on Facebook, you can also find me there. I don't use Facebook as much, so find me on Instagram and Twitter at TJ Standup. And my website is www.tanieljoachan.com. Amazing. Cool. Uh, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. All right. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, man. A separate page is the same page with a different point of view Isn't this the reason for what we're going through We live a little and love some more and then we die Here we are again love What am I? What am Summer into autumn Well, you know how that goes 
In between we find a dream and find out letting go The seasons that enclose us and the seasons outside those They remain a mystery in spite of what we know in spite of what we think we know Go wrap yourself in ether, sage and smoke Go, you'll soar above the magpies and the oak Go, go Go, go winter, my summer and my spring. I'll stay here and remember when you were here with me. I'll live a little and love some more, and then I'll die. Here we are again, love. What am I? What am I? That was me with the song Go. I don't always like to play my own music on the podcast, but my mom's birthday was Jan- uh, December 26th. That's one of the reasons why the holidays is kind of not great for me. Uh, she, oh my gosh, I think it was 2011 when she passed away, which was like a extremely sad thing. Obviously, um, also a time that sort of rejuvenated rejuvenated my awareness of being alive um but i never know how to commemorate that date like it's important to me to think about that date um so it's my mama's birthday that song i wrote in her memory and i thought i'd play at the end of the podcast just a little quiet moment so there you have it uh thanks for listening thank you tj for being on the podcast um michaelheron.com uh, at Michael Heron, all the social media patrons, be sure to check out the bonus podcast on Wednesday. And if you are newly patron, newly subscribed, there are, I think, like 20, 30 bonus podcasts that you now have access to. So, yay. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. What a great, uh, I really loved that interview. And I'll talk to you all next week. Bye.